Business Women Rock, Episode 21. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock Podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's going on, ladies? Welcome to number 21. Can you believe that we have been here for seven weeks already? It seems, honestly, just like yesterday that we launched the very, very first Business Women of Rock episode. And, um, you know, I can tell you this now, but my very, very first episode, my interview with Joy Jendusa, that little intro back then, the, the, like what I'm doing right now took me no exaggeration, like four or five hours to record because I was so nervous and I wanted to do it all in one take and I was trying to get it done and I was so frustrated and I was crying and it was crazy. And my husband had to come in here and like walk me through my lines (laughs) It was crazy. So just as I'm sitting here reflecting on our seventh week already, our 21st show, I'm, I'm even starting to now have some memories of the, those first shows and really uh, just being so grateful that you have been with me through this whole time as I've continued to grow as a podcaster, as the show has continued to grow. And I just really, really want to say how thankful I am for you being here, for you supporting, for listening, for rating us on iTunes for being a part of the Business Women Rock community on Facebook and on Twitter. I just really can't tell you enough how much I love your support, and I'm so happy that you're part of this community. And as a part of this community, you get some super cool perks, including any book of your choice for free. My guests on this show have been recommending some really awesome business books. So in order to get yours for free, anyone that you want, just go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash perks and download your book of choice from Audible. All that being said, let's move on to today's show. I have a big one for you. Okay, so here's the deal. I really love to have guests on here that sort of span, you know, a very diverse scale. You know, there are definitely startups on here. There are people who have built big businesses and just about everything in between. And really my goal is to be very diverse and to show you how businesses run from the inside out on all sorts of businesses. Today, though, is Anu Shukla. And Anu, let me just start with this fact. The very first company out of the gate that Anu started sold in 19 months for $366 million. Now, there's a huge story as to why she had that success, which you're going to hear today. And you're going to hear the stories about her following businesses that she's had since, um, including her current business, Rewards Pay, and the even bigger growth that she's had from those companies. So this is a story of somebody who really looks at business from an entirely different stratosphere, and she looks at business as a system and how it can really grow and scale giant. I mean, really, really big. So no matter if you have a small business or whether you have built out giant enterprises, the lessons that you're going to learn from Anu are just so foundational to attitude, to how she overcomes some really challenging times and how she just built with such a big goal in mind all the time. So turn up the volume because this one totally rocks. (laughs) 
Anu, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you uh, for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to tell your story uh, to our listeners today because you have a very robust business background and a lot of information to share, a lot of great wisdom that you've learned all these years. But I really want to start at the beginning so we get an idea of who you are and how you've come to be with business. So you are originally from India. Can you tell us how you came to the U.S.? Sure. Uh, First of all, I'm really glad to be here, and I'm glad you think that, uh, you know, my story could... uh, provide some insights to other business women and other business people, in fact. Um, yes, I, I am from India, and I actually came to the U.S. somewhat accidentally. I uh, accompanied my father, who was a business executive, on a trip to the U.S. and spent some time with relatives, ended up going to a few classes, you know, just to keep busy over the summer and then decided I really wanted to get back and get my MBA. And so I joined the program full time. And it just so happened that as I graduated in about two years, I was offered a job, a position in uh, the Silicon Valley in a place called Milpitas, California, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I said, well, you know, I'll spend about six months, uh, get some business training, practical training, uh, to really bring my MBA knowledge to life and then go back to India. But I loved it so much that I've stayed ever since. And so, um, you know, I'm really happy to be here and, and happy that I started out in a entrepreneurial venture, uh, which really gave me a taste for entrepreneurial pursuits. So do you have an entrepreneurial family? Obviously, you said your father was sort of a business executive. What kind of business existed around you when you were growing up? Well, actually, my father was an army officer, and, uh, you know, the one thing that we I do remember is that we uh, moved every three years, so I got really used to making new friends and getting used to a new environment, which probably explains why I'm not afraid of, uh, you know, changing, you know, jobs after three to five years or uh, moving on to new business uh, ventures, uh, so something new or change is not really daunting for me, uh, but then... Um, Somewhat at about 20, 25 years in the Army, he moved on to uh, business and he became the chairman and chief executive of a large enterprise. Actually, you know, they used to make bicycles, you know, in India. And then I was surrounded by sort of a business environment. And I knew he was, you know, trying to grow the business and he was the chief executive and had board meetings. And so I learned a lot about that and learned uh, all about, you know, building a global business and uh, and I was in that environment. So I think all of those really contributed to how I think and my outlook right now. Now, walk us through what your business experience was before you really started your first company. So you had gotten a job out of college, out of your MBA. And like, how did you bounce around? What kind of jobs did you have and what were you doing? So I worked for, I was fortunate enough to work for about six or seven uh, startups, I would say, all venture-backed startups. And fortunately, because I was part of some good teams and I was uh, really front and center and exposed to uh, growing a business from nothing to something, and I was fortunate enough to see that all of these companies that I worked for, first I started out in semiconductors, moved on to software enterprise, business-to-business software companies, they all went public or got acquired uh, at very decent uh, liquidity events. So... You know, I really sort of got emboldened at that point and said, you know, I've I've done this six or seven times. 
and every one of them has ended in a successful IPO or some sort of exit for investors, and the companies have grown and provided products of value, and I think I'm ready to do this myself. So that was my experience. Um, I think the last company I did uh, before I started my own company was a company called Versada, which went, uh, you know, which had an IPO, and um, and then I felt I was ready to to take the leap and start my own company. I think that's really fascinating. You saw from the ground up business getting built as a system and very successfully with it. what it sounds like was always the exit in mind. So you really had experience after experience of sort of a business getting built from the ground up for the purpose of being able to go public and for the purpose of doing that. That's a very unique experience. Yes, I agree with you. So it is really a function of uh, the experiences that I had. I was fortunate enough to be with these kind of enterprises. And I saw that, you know, here we are, 20 people in a room uh, in a small office, and we have an idea to tackle this problem and how it grows, uh, how to make it grow, how do you get your clients, how do you position your product, all of the, you know, how do you raise money. So since I was uh, familiar with that, I wasn't afraid of, uh, you know, doing it myself. I'd also been fortunate enough to have gone through these successful liquidity events, I call them. They're not exactly exits because most of the companies, uh, even after an IPO, continue to grow and prosper for, you know, 20 years. So I felt that, you know, if there was something that was unique in my experience, I should maybe parlay that into my own venture. And it's, uh, the time was 1997, and at this point, I had been the VP of marketing or products for six or seven enterprise software companies. And in this process, I had learned to run a budget, track the you know effectiveness of marketing, close the loop between a marketing campaign and, and what it resulted in, how to deal with customers, B2B lead generation. And I really knew this as a practitioner, having done this for business-to-business enterprise software companies. So the first piece of software that I created with the rubric was really a software that automated what I had done, you know, six or seven times before. So I really felt that from a user perspective, you know, a VP of marketing at a medium to large size business to business software company, I really knew what a VP of marketing needed to really run their function effectively. And that is really the software that I built. Also, being in the software field and being in the enterprise software field, I was up to date with the latest technologies and certainly the internet and a language called Java were making their entree into the technology space. And I found a lack of software that really leveraged these technologies effectively. So this is what my first idea was. Why don't I make software for large enterprises just like I had worked for and give them the tools and systems to really run a marketing function in a B2B enterprise. And that's what Rubrik was. It was an enterprise marketing automation software where at that time, marketing automation was thought of as an oxymoron. And uh, and I went out and marketed it to people like myself, people that were directors or VPs of marketing in uh, software enterprises or large enterprises. And uh, I was fortunate enough to land my first three customers because I spoke the language of my buyers. So uh, my first three customers were GM Financial Services, Hewlett Packard, and Cisco. And again, these were companies exactly like the type of companies I had worked for 
and the people I sold to were my peers. And uh, I was leveraging the latest software technologies to make our offering more compelling, easier to install, cheaper to buy, easier to learn. And I think that contributed to you know me having the credibility to raise funding for my uh, startup. Uh, and also to get my first customers. So I want to dig into that story just a little bit deeper because GM Financial, Cisco, and HP are not small clients. So I want to talk a little bit about what you needed to do in order to prepare your product and and show your product and be able to go to these clients, these potential clients, and show them what you had and get an interest. So it's kind of a two-part question. First and foremost, can you talk about what you needed to prepare and what you needed to produce and what it took to produce a prototype of this enterprise system. Yes. So one of the first things that uh, every entrepreneur needs to know, every business person needs to know, is that you really cannot do this by yourself. So one of the first things that I did was to recruit my co-founders. You know, one of my co-founders was a graduate from MIT who had built systems before, uh, and uh, somebody that I had worked with for a really long time, my VP of product management. So I, you know, we, we got together and, and they liked my vision, they shared it, and uh, my co-founder felt, well, you know, we can build this. So he went out and recruited really bright engineers that he knew for a while, and we set up shop in his house, uh, which was a loft south of Market in San Francisco. And uh, we uh, decided to define what this product would look like and uh, and to build a prototype to show to our prospective customers. But what we also did was we used our contacts in the industry to go get about 200 interviews with the exact same people that would be buying our software or using it. So basically we met with the directors and VPs of marketing of large enterprises, medium and large enterprises, and we showed them, here's what we're thinking of doing. And that, at that point, it was just a PowerPoint deck, after which we, it, uh, we turned it into a prototype, uh, basically an HTML you know, prototype that would visually show what the system would look like and what it would do. And we got their feedback from these 200 uh, over the course of about nine months. Uh, we met with and or over the web, showed them what our idea was, you know, got their opinions, uh, got their, you know, feedback into what was missing or what was something that they didn't consider useful, and really use that to define what the first version of the product must have. And um, once we had this prototype and we had feedback from these industry buyers and my peers that said, yes, if this existed, we would buy it, we packaged that all up to present to different venture capitalists and say we you know we need a significant you know amount of funding to really build this build a sales force build implementation and go sell it to these large enterprises the venture capitalists then did their own due diligence so they checked out the state of the market they also talked to many of our early prospective buyers and uh, got their feedback on why they thought this was important and that actually helped us land our first uh, you know, $8 million round of funding, which we then used to build the software and deploy it in the first, you know, three to five clients, also to build the sales force to go out and, and prospect and get additional buyers to build training and implementation services, upon which we raised, you know, another round of funding 
in order to scale the company. So in the period of uh, 18 months, you know, we had raised only about $13 million. We were not only able to, you know, get our first three customers and deploy them successfully where they saw value from what we had built and they were using it, but we were able to, you know, recruit and get another 25, you know, large or medium-sized uh, enterprise customers. And that made us, you know, pretty much in terms of traction and the product that we had built, visibility, positioning in the marketplace, revenues, uh, a leader in that segment. Uh, at this point, we were already in 1999, where a lot of other companies were going, you know, public in 2000, uh, in late 99 and 2000, and valuations were frothy. Many of these companies that went public at that time now looked around and said, we have a customer relationship management suite with service software and sales automation software. What are we missing? Marketing automation. So in order to you know, offer a complete suite to our customers, we need to either build or add that. You know, add was the faster way to go, and they looked around for companies in the space, and uh, many of them, you know, at least five different companies made a bid for us. Uh, you know, came after us and said, you know, you know, we're nearly public, and you know, we have a uh, you know, stock liquidity, and we need to add this component. Uh, and so, one of those companies actually ended up acquiring us in about 19 months. So from start to finish, you had a 19-month-old business, and you sold that business for $366 million. Is that correct? That is correct. I think that there are so many incredible points to that story. Number one is that you you really you went to potential buyers and did a lot of market research to figure out exactly what they wanted. So you were really co-producing um, and co-creating that software as you were going about. So that's a really important important point because I think sometimes so many of us business people think that we have to have a final product before we really take it to anyone. And what I'm hearing you say is that you really didn't, you had a great idea for a product. It it was pretty well put together, but you were going into these meetings, having conversations back and forth, making sure that you were adding everything that they, that you were getting feedback on and then compiling kind of the final product and taking it for usage. I think that's amazing. Well, yes. I mean, I think before we actually started to write any code at all, uh, we had already had, you know, 150 to 200 in-depth interviews with prospective customers. So we wanted to make sure that what we were building was indeed something that they wanted and that we were not missing out what customers really want. Um, So I think that went into our software, but you know, nothing prepares you for when you actually try to extract uh, money from somebody for something and then get them to use it. Because even after all that work, I just want to point out that a lot of our large customers, you know, made us you know, add more features, or they started to use parts of our software that we never thought were that important. And they said, well, this is the most important thing. So even though we did a lot of preparatory work, we actually ended up with something that was, I would say, 60 or 70% there in terms of what the real customers, when they tried to implement it, really wanted. But we were able to add those. It wasn't like we had a uh, a complete lack of product market fit. But getting product market fit really takes a really long time usually, you know, generally, you know, two, three years at least, even after you have something out in the marketplace. So, you know, we were fortunate that we had done some of that that work already and were seeing the stride of a, a product market fit. It was 
different from our overall grand total vision, but it was still of value so that people were buying it. And then as far as the, the exit that we had, I think I have to point out that there was a fair amount of, you know, what, what quote unquote people called luck in that as well. So yes, you know, we had a product that was selling. We had some good brand name customers. But if it wasn't the year 2000, early 99 and 2000, the market wouldn't have been that frothy and there wouldn't have been that, that many buyers that were out there to sort of supplement their CRM, customer relationship management offerings. And so I think we were a little bit of a beneficiary that a rising tide was definitely lifting a lot of boats. Mm, I think that's a really great point. And so many of our guests have have said that exact same thing. Timing was everything. Timing was everything. So the final question that I have about Rubric was really, did you plan from the beginning that you wanted to have this type of an exit strategy? Or did you just kind of go in wanting to build the business? I really did not plan to have this kind of exit strategy uh, or exit. Um, you know, it's uh, it was wonderful, but it was completely unplanned. And um, I think that's one of the benefits of working with venture capitalists. They actually have a vision on on what the marketplace is doing and what's the right thing for the company to do. And they have the connections to raise your visibility so that if you are performing, you are in the sight or the vision of other companies, you know, in the space. So I think we really benefited from having, you know, great venture capitalist firms, uh, you know, working with us on our board. Uh, seeing the bigger picture, seeing what the market was doing, and making sure that we were prepared to capitalize on opportunities that came our way. So that was, I think, a benefit. I was really, my my co-founders and and myself were really focused on building a business, uh, building the next version of the software. We were very much into the software, uh, the product and the market at at that time. It was so early for us, and it was completely a new experience for all three of us. So obviously, your very first entrepreneurial effort out of the gate was super successful. Now the company's been sold. Now what did you do? What did you move on to? Well, I actually took a little bit of time off. I took about six months off. And um, I actually spent a lot of time with my, um, you know, customers, you know, which were enterprises, uh, with the people that I had gotten to know there. You know, really, by happenstance, I, you know, they started to tell me what their next problem was. And um, I decided to tackle that with my next company. So about six months later, I jumped back in and started another company. And what was the focus of that company? I mean, really, it sounds like kind of an add-on or a new version or a kind of a next wave of something within the enterprising system. So really, the, the focus of the next company was to build another enterprise piece of software that would help sales operations folks. It was CRM-related, of course. Uh, but it would help them forecast better. So that was really our vision to build an analytics package that would take in demand signals and create a way that discrete manufacturers uh, would be able to forecast you know, how much they should build. So it, it was really designed for sales operations people and people responsible for demand forecasting. And uh, I think it was an offshoot of the fact that in the year 2000, um, late 2000 and 2001, a lot of discrete manufacturers like the folks like Cisco wrote off a lot of inventory. They wrote off billions of dollars of inventory because they weren't fast enough or they didn't have systems that gave them demand signals fast enough that the market was slowing down 
and their resellers would not be able to resell their product. So we decided to solve that problem. And we came up with another enterprise piece of software that was you know, licensed software that people bought and installed uh, to complement their other systems and do this function correctly. So we thought we were solving a major problem. We raised money for it and put together a team to go after that marketplace. However, in 2001, 2002, the market had really changed quite a bit. And how it had changed was that the bigger enterprise players had gotten you know, much bigger and that the market had also moved towards from a licensing software model to more of a software on demand or SaaS model. And uh, our product wasn't really a great fit for both of those. So companies were risk averse. They said, you know, we've sort of made a commitment to buy everything from SAP or Oracle. And if you aren't SAP or Oracle, you know, we're not really that open to, you know, trying to complicate our IT infrastructure by a brand new piece of software from an unknown startup. Uh, and also, more and more, they were shifting towards not even buying software on a licensed model, but more of a hosted model. So we had some success. We had our initial four or five customers. But at that point, I made a decision to really uh, pivot the company. And I pivoted into a retail SaaS product, which retailers could use to make intelligent recommendations to their customers. So it was based on some technology that we had already built, but really it went after a new market space with a new platform. And that company is called MyBuy. So not only did you know it start off as something else and we pivoted it, but now it, it has about 400 or so uh, retail e-commerce clients and has raised about $19 million. So I was there for uh, five years as the founder and you know through the pivot and as the CEO. And then three more years, uh, three and a half more years, actually, on the board uh, of that company. And then uh, we brought in the CEO to really scale the company to the next level. And, um, you know, that company is called MyBuys, and I'm, I'm very happy that they've been, you know, pretty successful in the path that we sent out and all of the different things that they've had to do since then. So I want to fast forward a little bit to the next company that you launched, which was OfferPal in 2007, because that had nothing to do with enterprise software or you know operational software or anything like that. That was something completely different. So can you talk about how that business came about and talk a little bit about exactly what that business model was? So OfferPal came about because I, at that point, uh, remember uh, my buys was really selling to retailers. And I think a lot of retailers, my VP of marketing contacts and retailers said, you know, we're talking about the growth of social media. So in adopting the Internet and online selling, I think a lot of large retailers were a little late to the party, giving pure plays like Amazon and others an opportunity to become really big. Um, and, you know, they were a little bit more cognizant of uh, consumer trends and wanted to capitalize on social media and um, this phenomenon that was uh, starting to occur and be a little bit faster to iterate and apply that to their business. So I was pointed by, you know, many of these people that I talk to on a regular basis about their interest in all the emerging social platforms like MySpace and even at that point the fledgling Facebook. And so for my next venture, I was fascinated by this platform and what, how businesses would apply it. 
and I started to look into social media. Uh, and I just, you know, I didn't have any very concrete ideas, but I really wanted to do something in the social networking area. My co-founder, uh, who again, you know, again, uh, these things are never done alone. My co-founder actually came from the CPA space. He was an entrepreneur himself, and the CPA space is all about cost per action advertising. So basically, there are a lot of uh, advertisers that are looking not just for brand advertising, CPM, uh, or CPC, cost per click, which are the popular models, but uh, they're looking to close the loop uh, on their advertising effectiveness by actually offering a call, some call to action for the user to try or buy something. And uh, he came from that area. So, you know, he brought that knowledge to the party, and I was looking into social media and immersing myself in that technology and also looking at major, you know, retailers and what they were looking for from this. So we decided to actually create uh, an application, an application that would let people take CPA offers and earn a virtual currency, and then they could use that to, you know, cash in that to buy Starbucks gift cards or, you know, some, something like that. And that's how really our journey began. We, we built that uh, widget or that application, we launched it, and, you know, we, we found that in beta it wasn't very viral, which means it wasn't growing, wasn't having the network effect that we had hoped that it would have. So we looked at this CPA monetization that we had built for our own application, and within a, you know, you know, within a few months of being into the beta, we decided to offer it to some other applications also on the Facebook and MySpace platforms, and these were all game applications. So there was an application, you know, called uh, Fluff Friends. There was a poker application. There was uh, a farming application, and all of these people were basically letting people pay for free and then buy their virtual currency to advance their gameplay. So when we added our offer-based monetization, it did surprisingly well. And so we decided not to launch our own application, but take our back-end offer-based monetization piece and turn it into monetization for all of the applications. So let me just make sure I kind of put this into real terms. So this means that back then, if I were on Facebook and I went to play the game, you know, Texas Hold'em Poker, that application that prior to you, I would play for free. But if I wanted to add, you know, extra things, I would pay for. And that's sort of how the company and the application was making money. Now your back end came in and said, well, cool, let's add some, you know, kind of a point system and a reward system for these advertisers. So if they come in and they buy this or, or they sign up for this, um, you know, Netflix deal, then yeah. the advertisers would pay for that there because they're getting traffic from that. And now that's a whole revenue that's coming into that that application, right? Yes, correct. Got that's it. exactly right. Okay. And actually, Texas Hold'em Poker was one of our first three titles. So obviously, once you were able to show an ROI for one application, I would imagine it became pretty darn compelling, it, compelling yeah. because it was a brand new idea that now these applications who were sort of you know making a, a decent revenue using this on, on Facebook, now all of a sudden there's a, an entirely different revenue possibility and they were kind of knocking at your door, right? 
Yes, correct. Yes. Wow. So what was what were some of the biggest challenges that you had? Because you really did a pivot right in the middle of, you know, okay, this is what we were, thought we were going to bring to the market. Now, all of a sudden, we've noticed that within the gaming space, there's this huge potential. Let's shift and now offer this. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you had as you were rolling that out? So the biggest challenges we had was keeping up with hyper growth. Okay, we were a small number of people. We quickly, you know, we had raised money. And so, you know, we were, I think, probably at that point, one of the only VC-backed, you know, companies in the space. Uh, But, you know, we had to keep up with building the technology to really function. And uh, and we had to do that while doing hyper growth. So we had to hire people and really try to capitalize on this opportunity in the proper way. And so there was no way that we could actually run the business uh, without certain levels of automation, which we had not built at that point. So let's say the number of users on our system is going exponentially, and the number of offers or you know advertising deals we had to get also had to keep up with that. And um, you know we tried to set up a backend infrastructure where advertisers we could link into you know um, things like commission junction and all these like sources of advertising offers. But there wasn't very a great deal of automation, and so we were not able to really maintain uh, or police the quality of some of the offers that came. So that, I would say, was one of the problems. The second problem was, you know, providing enough analytics and reporting uh, to application developers so that once they onboarded it, they could, you know, look at what they were earning and how they were monetizing their traffic. And the third was optimization, like how do we optimize and display the offers with the most intelligence that are popular with that game's users. And uh, and then there was this huge flow of money. How do we collect the money from the advertisers and how do we distribute it to publishers and all the reporting and tools. So really, we were caught now in problems of hyper growth, you know, maintaining quality, building the right levels of automation to maintain that quality, and also the reporting and growing the company, you know, very fast. So those were our our typical problems. At an industry level, you know, this was such a popular idea, and there was so much growth on Facebook and Facebook applications that uh, there was a, a looming sort of shift. Many of the platforms were now looking at, well, you know, I have, you know, 500, 600 million users, and I'm not monetizing it effectively myself. So I think the platforms like MySpace, Facebook, we're all looking at, you know, where's our revenue stream and what do we do to not only maintain quality on our platform, but also how do we get all the monetization opportunities that, you know, really as a platform we should be getting. And the third thing was, you know, we were able to pivot very quickly. We were able to reach profitability, you know, in record time, um, you know, in, in our first six months. And uh, our revenues were growing in, you know, hundreds million dollars range. And we were struggling with sort of keeping up with the growth and automation that is required. You know, the interesting thing was that there was not a great deal of competitive barriers for other people to get into the space, too. So we were having competition, you know, popping up quite frequently. And all all that accomplished was... You know, there was more sort of unpoliced offerings out there and also, you know, that they were putting margin pressure. So the pressure to come up with the best offers or the highest performing offers was also very high, I think, for everybody in the industry if you wanted to keep your publisher base. So those are, that was kind of the frothy, you know, environment at that time. 
So you touched upon one of the biggest challenges that you had that I really want to bring out uh, and ask you about, because I think it's one that so many business women and business people all over really experience, which is hyper growth, whether you know, you're kind of a one person show and you're getting way too many clients than you can handle, or you're a large business that all of a sudden is getting this giant influx of, of requests and orders and all that sort of stuff. How did you deal with trying to keep up with that? You know, I feel as a business person, there's, there's, it's never all done. And there's always 20 more things on a to-do list in order to do both structurally and just implementing the day-to-day operations of a business. But what was your approach to actually dealing with that hyper growth on a day-to-day basis? What did you do? I would have to say that it was a heady time. You know, it was really nice to see the revenues quadrupling and going up to the zenith every day. So it was a very happy time, but a very, very busy time. And how we dealt with it was, again, we looked towards the seasoned people on our board, uh, the venture capitalists that had funded us. We looked for them to help us with, you know, recruiting people, with uh, keeping their eyes out on the marketplace and telling us things that maybe we didn't see, and counting on the experience of having gone through similar situations as to all of the the right, you know, management infrastructure, governance, compliance. They approved, you know, quickly approved the project, uh, you know, to automate the quality and the filtering for these offers. And, and we try to hire good people as soon as possible. You have to take time to build the infrastructure. Uh, and you really need a lot of guidance for that because, you know, we were profitable. We were making money. Even though we had raised money, we actually went out and raised money when we didn't need it. Uh, we did a B round of like 20, you know, 15, 20 million dollars in order to help us, you know, put the right infrastructure in place and and get more, you know, more accomplished quicker. I think we were one of the only VC backed companies in that space that was experiencing hyper growth, and we decided to invest in building the company for the long term. Now, you had a situation that happened in 2009 with OfferPal that was pretty controversial where somebody at a convention that you were speaking at, you were on a panel, and somebody was really questioning not only your business, but really your industry of being really unethical in your practices. Can you just do a quick explanation of what happened? And what I really want to focus on was what impact did that event have on you and how did you move forward from it? So I previously alluded to this when I said, you know, we were growing very fast and there was many com- competition jumping in and there was a pressure from publishers to monetize, but there was also pressure from the platforms to have a sane and transparent and uh, you know good practices in terms of the offers that were being presented to the consumers. You know, I do believe that that controversy was actually had some grounding in uh, in reality. Uh, we were in a good position. We had already, you know, approved a project to sort of automate the quality of offers that came into our system, and we were one of the few companies that had the backing, you know, to be able to do that. However, I think that the controversy came because I had like a bad reaction to a, a simple question. My reaction to that question actually caused more scrutiny into what the industry was doing, but it was quickly determined that, yes, in fact, it was a problem, a minor problem, at whatever level, there was still something that existed, and that companies like OfferPal were taking steps to actually, you know, make sure that the consumers were protected. And I think that controversy, you know, flamed up and, you know, uh, and I tried to do, and my board tried to do what was right for the company. And, you know, the company, you know, slowly recovered from that. And there was a bigger issue. And the bigger issue was that people's gaming habits were changing and they were moving on to, uh, you know, 
doing a lot of activities that they had done on platforms like Facebook, they were actually now doing it on their smartphones. That was a bigger structural issue, I think, that was somewhat dwarfed by this controversy. But luckily, we kept our eyes on the ball there and you know, acquired a company called Tapjoy, which was a small company at that time that were doing um, you know, the same thing that we did on the Facebook games platform. They were doing it on mobile games platform because they had partnered with us. In fact, they were using our system to give these offer-based monetization to mobile apps. And so we ended up acquiring that company along the way, which set us up nicely to really ride the trend of the move to mobile earlier than other folks, and I think that really benefited us. So um, I think that the important thing is that this controversy did occur, and, uh, you know, the company did step up. I did step up, and the company stepped up to do the right thing for the company and to move on and not lose track of the fact that there was even a bigger wave that was happening behind it, and we were able to capitalize on it. And that's why OfferPal, which acquired TapJoy and, you know, it renamed the company to TapJoy to reflect the new direction, was able to still prosper and grow, you know, raise money, still profitable. You know, it's a major force in the uh, mobile advertising arena and has, you know, prospered and survived. So I think that was a lesson. I think that, you know, we had to, you know, step back and take a look at the way we were handling things and put in the right mechanisms in place, either from a, you know, perception or visibility point of view or from an actual automation point of view to really make sure that our product was, uh, you know, not actually uh, detrimental to consumers. Can you give advice to our listeners who might be going through a really rough time just like this, might have, you know, just something has gone on in their business that are significantly affecting their revenues or are just making them having to step back and really, really look again at the way that they're doing business. Can you give some advice to those businesswomen who are going through that tough time and how they can really come out of it? Sure. So, yes, you know, when when this uh, the controversy and all that uh, happened, you know, I think one of my first reactions was like, you know, we go out of our way to be transparent with publishers and with consumers and we're doing a good thing and how can you even intimate that they, what we're doing or the industry is doing something wrong. So I think that was my first reaction and I think that was reflected in sort of the, you know, the response or the reaction that I had at the conference. And I think that uh, it's important uh, to have a little bit of a thicker skin. Okay, I was reacting to the fact that, you know, somebody's attacking my company. And I think one of the first things I think I would say is no matter how tough the criticism is, I think you have to have a little bit of a thicker skin and be more even keyed in your response. So from that point onwards, our reaction as a company and myself was pretty on the up and up in terms of, well, let's really look if there's a problem. If there is, let's fix it. Let's admit that, yes, there, there was maybe a problem, and we are doing, taking steps to fix it. So I think there, I think our reaction was actually very good, and it helped us recover from that whole controversy and move, move our business on. You know, I love your response to that because it really shows that you were willing to kind of put ego aside and, you know, this understandably passionate response that you had had to ultimately decide, okay, what's best for the business? And if we're getting this feedback, let's really step aside from that and take a look and see if there's legitimacy to that, see how we can improve because of that. And, you know, I got to say, in my six years of being an entrepreneur, I have seen my ego really get involved in the business and get in the way of the business continuing to evolve and grow. And thankfully, I have learned over the years to be able to 
identify that and separate that because I really don't believe that ego and business can coexist together. I think your ability to be able to recognize that and take that aside and really look in and see all these perspectives to ultimately decide what's best for the business and the business growth, I think that's incredible. Well, thank you. Uh, it didn't seem like an incredible event at the time. But again, <laughs> luckily, we were surrounded by, you know, good people that were involved with our company. And, uh, you know, we all had the same thought. Let's do the best thing for the business. And none of the the firms or the people involved with the company were at all interested in, you know, in, in hurting consumers in any way, shape, or form. And we just had to make sure that, you know, our own good intentions didn't get in our way. So I want to fast forward now to your current company, which is Rewards Pay. Can you talk about how this idea came about and describe the business of Rewards Pay? Sure. I think Rewards Pay actually leverages a lot of things that I've done in the past. One of the things that I mentioned, a company called My Buys that's in the retail space. So I, I dealt a lot with retailers. Uh, and then uh, the monetization space, we, you know, OfferPass really had evolved into a payment system. Offers was one payment system, but we, you know, offered also many other, aggregated many other types of payment systems. And also, I think it exhibited the power of the points, you know, the virtual currency, and how that is used, in fact, to, um, you know, gain loyalty and advance a program and advance usage and, you know, how consumers value it. So, I was looking for, you know, something that brought all of these things together, and I started to look into the loyalty space, and I found that there's about $48 billion every year in the U.S., $100 billion worldwide that are given out in the form of loyalty currency. Now, this comes from the financial sector, credit cards, from from travel sector, airlines and hotels, and also retail, though many of the retail systems are closed loop. You know, there's a lot of ways that uh, consumers earn this, and then there's a lot of ways that they spend it. So my idea was, let's look at the ways that uh, consumers spend it. And I found that a third of this loyalty capital that belongs to consumers actually goes unredeemed every year. That's like saying, you know, out of this, you know, 48 or 50 billion, about 18 billion is never redeemed. And, um, you know, and that actually is, Believe it or not, it not only is a, is a financial problem for consumers, they're leaving money on the table, but it's also a problem for loyalty programs because that means your consumer doesn't really value your currency and it's sort of disconnected from you. So my idea was why not take this loyalty currency and make it a way that people can pay for goods and services with the least amount of friction. So the idea was to do something called shop with points. So just as you go on Amazon.com and buy goods for, you know, by using your credit card, you can use your reward points from a credit card, you know, to pay for the same goods. So why not just spend it there? Why go through the trouble of, you know, I'm going to go to www.bankxyz.com, log into an account, and, and, you know, consumers have like 15 or 18 programs that they have, and they may be active in about five of them. And then I get a certificate or I buy, you know, goods there and have it shipped and sometimes it gets lost and sometimes I don't get my gift card and, you know, a lot of consumers don't have time to deal with that, you know, six or seven times uh, with the programs that they are in. So I looked at that area and said, how about if we turned it into a very convenient, low friction, easy to use uh, method of payment at a merchant checkout? 
And the first thing we did was we, you know, launched this with popular products like iTunes and uh, even Facebook uh, gift cards. And we said, okay, if you were to have the ability to get iTunes uh, and in an easy way, you know, would you do it? And, you know, we found it was a, a good, very successful. We, you know, deployed it in a few gaming and other digital sites. And as our platform progressed to where it could actually handle physical goods retailers, we're now providing this as a payment service for major retailers. And uh, one of the first launches that we've had in the physical retail has been in uh, for a company called Overstock.com. So today you can go there and use Rewards Pay and, and, and bring in um, your rewards currency and use that to pay for goods and services. And uh, goods at, uh, at Overstock, we also... Uh, launched in about seven or eight, you know, physical good merchants there in in Europe. Uh, we're working with uh, four different, you know, four major programs, and you know, about a dozen or so retailers right now. So, you know, I think it's a, uh, you know, consumers love it. They love the fact that they can uh, get something of what they perceive as free. So, somebody was just talking to me about this the other day, day and said, "Oh, I went to, you know, Overstock.com and I bought." stuff worth $25, but I only paid $5. 20 was just points. So people perceive this as, you know, I'm, I'm getting sort of this gift at checkout. For this thing that I'm going to buy, I can either pay with points or pay with my cash. And uh, the choice is pretty simple. People choose to pay with their points or some combination of points and, and card if they don't have enough points. So this is what we're doing. We're very excited. It's a big market. There's $100 billion worldwide given out in rewards every year. If we can get 10% of this to flow through our system, I think that's a, a huge opportunity for us. I think that's really interesting. So you are allowing me as a consumer who has, let's say, 10,000 points on my Amex card, I can now go use those points not only towards whatever I'm usually able to use those towards, you know, calling up Amex and saying, great, let me book these hotels or whatever. I can go to rewardspay.com and I can say, here are my loyalty program points. I can use this for anything or I can use this for overstock.com to buy something else or I can use this, you know, to purchase iTunes or whatever that is. Is that correct? That is correct. But uh, the only difference I want to point out is we are making your favorite credit cards points available at a merchant checkout. So you don't really have to come to rewardspay.com and register and open an account or anything. You're just busy browsing and shopping at overstock.com, and you can use your, let's say, Discover card cashback bonus to buy goods and services. And when you're at checkout, you can choose to pay with your credit card, and they have all those facilities available or PayPal, or you can use Rewards Pay, which means you're using your uh, card, credit card points to pay for it. That's a great idea. I love that. I'm <laughs> glad you do. I like it. <laughs> now, in order to make that very easy for the consumer, you're having to do a lot of stuff on the back end to make sure those systems are in place. So what I hear that you're having to do is develop these really strong partnerships and agreements with these large merchant accounts and with the, the loyalty program um, yeah. suppliers, right? So what do you, what's your yeah. trick on doing that? Once we've identified this is what we want to do, um, you know, again, it's like building a business brick by brick. You know, in this case, you know, the good news is that unlike 
the early offer pal experience where once it's proven to be a success, it's got fewer competitive barriers. Over here, there's a lot of competitive barriers, and the competitive barriers are really around that, it, that this is not easy to do, okay? So it's not easy to do. It's not easy to go to large loyalty programs and say, you know, would you please, you know, let us work with you and, um, you know, provide this value. I mean, it's not that they don't see the value. It, they're just large organizations, and it takes them a while to make decisions. And the, the next thing you have to do is you have to go to merchants and say, here's why I think you should use this method. It's going to bring you incremental revenue. It's going to increase your basket size. Here are some data points. It's going to get you a marketing exposure into large membership bases. Um, you know, again, those are also big enterprises, so they have questions. Why should we do this? Are we going to cannibalize our sales? How much marketing will you give me? I have too many projects. So there's a sales cycle and some slowness involved there as well. And all these, you know, you could think of these as insurmountable barriers, but how I think about them is it's really the price of building up a competitive advantage or some competitive defensibility in the space. And having suffered through the lack of, you know, competitive defensibility in prior, you know, uh, versions, there's always competition, and it's a very good thing. But if it's too easy, then, you know, quickly, you know, there'll be margin pressures. So we're able to avoid that by choosing this sort of difficult nut to crack. But having said that, once you do crack it, the rewards are endless, no pun intended. So I want to talk a little bit about from kind of an overview of your whole business experience. You have obviously, and you've said it multiple times throughout this, that you can't do it by yourself. It really takes a team. I've read interviews that you've done where you're constantly giving accolades to all of these teams that you've had over all these years and all these different businesses. So you obviously have learned quite a bit on how to build a really great and successful team. Can you give some advice to our listeners on how to build a great team, how to hire, how to manage, all of those really nuts and bolts kind of things that you have really done very well? You know, I think that uh, I've learned along the way. I think it's so critical to get the right team. And the team not only needs to be a great team, but they also need to be empowered and they also need to work with each other. So what I try to do, and again, I've been a work in progress, I still am, is take my time to hire really great people, the people that are really competent at what you're asking them to do and have a passion for it, share a passion with you. That's, you know, uh, number one thing. And two, they set up an environment where you're not micromanaging them, you're letting them do the job. So I think of hiring, you know, the CEO of marketing and the CEO of engineering. They should be able to run their business uh, and work with their team members without you having to second-guess their every decision. So you have to empower them. Uh, but thirdly, you also have to have accountability. So you have to set up the right of goals for them that you everybody can agree on, and then you have to monitor them, and um, and then you have to foster an environment where you know there's open communication, there's transparency. So all this sounds lovely. It's never exactly the way you plan it. So you'll end up with somebody that's disgruntled or maybe not the best for their job. In that case, my advice is you need to admit that it was a mismatch, and you know cut the ties as soon as possible. So. To summarize it, I would say, you know, take uh, take a long time to hire, but be very quick to really fire. Anu, what are some other ways that you have grown as a businesswoman throughout all of these experiences? I was really, you know, again, I would say experience is a wonderful thing uh, because um, 
you can read and learn about all of the things that you should do as a good manager, as an entrepreneur, as a marketer, or whatever profession you choose. But unless you experience it, you really don't know exactly how it should be done. So I'm grateful for every experience that I've had because I really like to learn from it. And as I summarize it, it's not about not making mistakes. I think everybody, you know, if we, if we were all scared of making mistakes, then we wouldn't really do much. So I think it's okay to make mistakes as long as you don't make, keep making the same mistake. So what I've tried to do is really try not to make the same mistake. Uh, but but make new ones. <laughs> <laughs> In the world of consistently making mistakes, right? <laughs> yes. Everybody makes mistakes, mm. but you just don't have to make the same mistake again and again. So as long as you're learning from your mistakes, I think you know you're in a, you're, you're you're progressing and you're in, you're going to be in a good place. Now, how about any books that have stood out for you that have been really helpful in not only your growth but maybe you know different approaches that you've taken towards your company all these years? It was a very good business book, I think, by Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm. Uh, for me, that was a very eye-opening book. Now, one thing that we haven't even touched upon is your personal life. You are a mother of twins. I would really like to know how you manage being a mother and how you manage being a business owner, because both of those take a lot of energy to do. So how have you managed those uh, two roles over these past years? Oh, that's a very good question. Do you remember, I think there was a movie called Fried Green Tomatoes. Did yes. you ever see that movie? Yeah, great movie. So just, yeah, great movie. Do you remember how the, I forget her name, uh, this very good actress, um, she, uh, somebody's annoying her or whatever, and she, she purposely bangs into his car and she goes, you know, you may be younger, but I'm older and I have more insurance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so that kind of reminds me of my state right right now. You know, I did have my children a little bit later in life, and uh, and I was able to you know really pursue all these uh, business uh, things with great passion and spend you know the crazy eighteen hour days uh, on them. And you know, it was very very gratifying to see you know different levels of success. But you know, and it's a disadvantage that you know your kids are still young. But it's also an advantage because you can actually afford more help. <laughs> so I'm a big believer because I've had to be that it takes a village. I'm fortunate; I have a nice extended family that helps out. Uh, and but I can also afford you know a lot of help in order to you know keep uh, my kids. But there's no amount of money that you can buy that replaces the time that you want to spend with your children. So uh, I've really come to the conclusion that there is no really work-life balance, that at different times you have to make a choice. So, you know, there was a time when I made the choice that I really wanted to just focus on my work. And at this time, I choose not to have, you know, that, that kind of maniacal focus. So I will, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay that if I, if my company grows, you know, 50% rather than 55 or 70%, uh, it's okay with me. It can be 50%, but it gave me more time to spend with my kids. And that's just a choice I've made. Anu, you are a very, very driven woman. What drives you? Like, where do you get that fire? I guess, uh, I think growing up, I had some great role models. My my parents, uh, mostly. My mother, you know, was a working mother as well. Uh, she was a teacher for many, many years. Uh, so I really feel like I have their support. I also, the kind of schooling and the teachers I had, I guess I was just lucky uh, to have all these motivating factors, you know, in my life. And uh, ultimately, I think what drives me is that I, 
I just love it. You know, I mean, I wouldn't be doing another company, certainly not for financial reasons, if I wasn't, if I really didn't enjoy just being part of a team uh, that is trying to accomplish something. I mean, I just love that ride and I love that journey. And um, to me, just lounging around and basically not doing anything, I'm not ready for that yet. I'm sure I'll be ready for that at some point. We all are. But... I'm just letting my, you know, my internal signals guide me. And if they tell me, you know, you should go out and build something, you still have it in you, you know, I don't care if I'm 90 years old, I'll just keep doing it as long as I'm internally driven to do it. I really want to close this conversation by asking you, what do you see in the future for you? Like, what's your vision, both maybe for rewards pay and for you? So first of all, I am 100% committed to rewards pay as my enterprise. So that's one thing that I do. Uh, you, you know, you might think that because I have done many companies, I've worked in many companies, I've done many ventures, that somehow I can't stick with something. But actually, that's not true. And uh, I'm not at all, you know, uh, diverted from a central goal. And my central goal right now is to make rewards pay a success. I think it's a fascinating market. I'm having a great time and I'm building something. Uh, And there have been many difficult situations just in terms of the market structure that we've had to overcome and we're still working on it. But I think the trajectory is really starting. I really enjoy the part where, you know, you really, really, really work hard and struggle and then you start to see signs of success and then you start to take off. That is a big high for me. So I am, you know, single-mindedly pursue that. I don't do any other thing. I don't, you know, get involved in other companies, sit on boards, try to invest in a hundred things, and you know, I, I don't. I'm single-mindedly focused on rewards pay, and so far that's the pursuit that I like the most. So I do see a lot of success for rewards pay. I think we will be very successful in building a a valuable enterprise, and I'm here to see it through to that stage. After that, what happens, I never really think about that. Who knows? Uh, You know, I've always wanted to do something in media. Maybe I'll have a chance to, you know, uh, to have my own talk show. I don't know. I'm completely open to those things. But right now, I'm pretty much focused on on, uh, building this uh, venture. Hey, you want to jump into the podcasting space? Let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing a great job over there already, you know? No, thank you. I mean, something completely different, you know, maybe go produce a movie. I don't know. I think we should all do whatever drives us, you know, uh, at any given stage in our life and not create barriers for ourselves. You know, I'm too old to start a company. I'm too young to be uh, an entrepreneur. You know, I'm too uh, old to be on, you know, starting a new thing. I just don't think, I think these are all artificial. And if you really want something and you like it and you enjoy doing it, you should just go ahead and do it. That's what I believe. I love that advice, and I can't think of a better way to end this interview. I just, I know that it's obvious through this entire conversation that whatever it is that you decide to do is going to not only be just successful, but like massively successful. You've proven that over and over again. So I really sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank you so much for telling your story and for being so candid about your experiences and the lessons that you've learned. Um, I have definitely taken away so much from this conversation, and I just really appreciate you being willing to share that with myself and all of our listeners. So thank you so much, Anu. Thank you so much.
My biggest takeaway from my conversation with Anu was really just to think big and to not have any limitations on who you are or what you're capable of. She was so not surprised by her success all these years. And it's because she really just did not put any expectations on what she could or could not do. And I really love that about her. So I hope that you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you learned as much as I did. If you want to see the full show notes, go to bizwomenrock.com forward slash 21. Thank you so much for being here. You rock. I'll see you on the next show. Bye.